welcome to the Black Lawyers Matter podcast, providing you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom, brought to you by the Stephen James Partnership and Black Lawyers Matter. I'm your host, Samuel Clegg. Across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a host of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from within the legal profession to understand why diversity is important to their organization and how they've excelled throughout their careers. Through these inspirational and educational conversations, we will be equipping you with the skills, knowledge and acumen necessary to not only navigate the legal landscape, but to thrive within it. Hello and welcome to Black Lawyers Matter podcast. I'm Samuel Clegg and delighted to be joined by James Libson, the managing partner of Mishcon Durea very experienced litigator and someone who's worked on some of the most high-profile cases over the last 20 or so years. So James, welcome. Many thanks for taking the time out to, to have a chat with me. Thanks, Samuel. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, I've, I wanted you to, to come on, James, to talk about some of the, I suppose, work that the firm has done uh, and probably most importantly, how that change has, has happened from your perspective. But I guess before we go into to some of that detail, it'd be great to kind of get a little bit more of an understanding on kind of you and, and your background and why law. So I guess, James, if we can rewind uh, a couple of years, I saw that you did uh, Arabic and English at university. What was it that kind of prompted you to, to want to be a lawyer? Well, it wasn't my university experience and it wasn't uh, the immediate after university experience looking for a job. I definitely did not know what I wanted to do. Uh, And immediately after university, I spent a year doing a sabbatical position for a youth movement that I had grown up in. And a few people used to then, at the end of their experience in that youth movement, do a sabbatical year running the youth movement um, and then move on to whatever they were going to do next. And that's what I did. And so I didn't really have to make a decision at university. And after that, I um, spent a year uh, working for Unilever on their graduate training program, uh, which was a two-year graduate training program, but I really did not enjoy that. And so two years after graduating, I was in a position where I was in something that I wasn't enjoying and I had to look for something else. And I had all of the sort of normal pressures that, 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 that people have of parents wanting me to find a job and wanting to find a job and all the rest of it. And I decided at that point that uh, perhaps I should try law. And so completely unlike the way in which people nowadays have to organize themselves from a much earlier age and really focus on what they want to do. It was much easier in those days. Uh, At the time, the legal profession was growing at a greater rate than people were entering into it because there'd been a liberalization of the profession and it was much easier to get into. So I applied for law school, which again was easy to get into. And I had no experience whatsoever um, looking for summer jobs or speaking to people Uh, and uh, I applied for a training contract, or articles as it was then called, at a number of firms. I thought I wanted to be a showbiz lawyer, that sounded fun, Um, and I applied for for a number of firms that had a film or music practice um, that actually my dad had pointed me in that direction because he was an accountant with um, some showbiz clients, and one of them was Michelin Durea, and I had an interview at Michelin Durea. It was the first day I'd ever set foot into a law firm, and um, I liked it, got offered a training contract and accepted it and actually didn't have to go to the other interviews. So 
It was that easy in those days. You're probably underplaying it a bit, James. I'm, I'm sure it was a bit more difficult than that. I don't think I am. I actually think it was it, it was much easier. I think it was more difficult when you were in, um, and it, it was a challenging environment once once you started. Uh, but actually, getting in was not nearly as difficult. I mean, not by a huge degree as it is for people uh, today. And partly it was because uh, there was a lot less competition, but partly it was, it was also because the market, the legal market, was really growing very quickly and, and a, at a quicker rate uh, than the legal education system was able to produce uh, qualified lawyers at that time. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And again, we're going to dig into a lot of things in relation to EDNI in due course, which for me is a, is a huge passion and I think something that we both share. But outside of law, James, what, what are some of your passions? I, I suppose I'm, I'm, a, I'm an interested member of society. I like to be engaged in what's going on in the world. Uh, I don't have hobbies, as it were, and passions of that nature. I do the normal things that people like to do, which is spend time with my family, go on holiday, cook, go to the cinema, go to the theatre. But I like to be engaged in outside life. I've, I, I've had... Um, throughout my professional career, also a career in working for charities and philanthropic organisations. Uh, I chaired, until about six years ago, the Jewish Communities Humanitarian Agency uh, in the UK, which is called World Jewish Relief, and, and that looks after both Jewish communities internationally that, that need assistance, but also generally um, humanitarian issues, including very focused on refugee crises over the last 10 years. And I now chair another charity called PRISM, uh, which is a charity that looks after lots of other different charities, including many grassroots refugee charities. And so obviously at the moment, uh, that has been something that we're very, we're very focused on. And really for the last 10 years, issues around uh, that has been a very, very important part of my life. Uh, the way in which the world, the philanthropic sector, uh, civil society and politics respond to a uh, refugee crisis. That, 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 I would say, has been one of my interests and passions. Yeah, well, well, thank you for sharing that. And if I may dig a little bit deeper on that, where, where from a personal perspective, does that, do, do you think that that passion comes from? Because it's clear, kind of hearing from you and having a bit more insight into that, that uh, it, it comes out, that, that passion comes out. But from your perspective, James, where does that kind of inner passion come from? I think any immigrant community, uh, and I, even, though, even though I'm many, many generations not an immigrant, many generations, recognises the experience um, through history of uh, people having to move and to move in circumstances not of their own making, uh, and sometimes uh, those circumstances making it very difficult uh, for them, both in the movement and then in the settling down. And so one recognises that, uh, th that experience, and then one also recognises uh, one's responsibility to respond to that. And I don't, you don't have to have, you don't have to come from that background uh, to recognise th th that experience. You absolutely do not. But if you have got that background, it resonates very, very loudly. Uh, and so that's, that's you know, I, seeing um, issues, mass movements of people around the world caused by various crises over the last uh, 10 to 15, uh, 15 years uh, in ways that we 
maybe you couldn't have imagined, certainly in the Western world, that it was going to happen again, uh, has meant that where I can, uh, with the organizations that I've worked for, uh, I, I've hopefully, you know, been a part of a response in, in, in different ways. Uh, and that's, that, you know, that's both in the philanthropic organizations I've been involved in and, uh, and certainly at, at Mishcon's a little bit as well. Thank you for that. And I guess one thing that I'm keen to explore a little bit more is that everyone across their professional careers will have that moment that shaped them. And it might be, was often a setback and how they deal with that and how they show resilience to overcome that particular kind of career low light is often the making of very successful people. So what I'm interested from your perspective, James, is could you give me kind of an example of maybe a career low light for you and how, how you change that into a positive? Well, yeah, let me make one general point and then I'll give you a specific example as well. So one general point is that in a career, the lows and the highs come at equal uh, frequency all the time. And it doesn't, it doesn't end. It doesn't end 31 years into a career. You don't have lows and it's all sort of steady. Uh, there are pressures. There are things that go wrong. Uh, there are issues uh, with people in the organization. There are issues with clients. There are things and cases that go wrong. Uh, there's the world to, world to contend with as well. So it, it's not a straight line of learning and experience. And then you move on to the next thing. And, and, and at one point, you get into the sunny upland, uplands when everything is normal and, and uh, calm. Um, you always have to deal with what, what life throws you. One of the very early learning and specific experiences was that one of the biggest cases that I was involved on very early on my career was a very important case to the firm because it was referred to us by our then chair. It was one of the first cases that he had referred to us. And it was a business that he was associated with and we took the case on from another firm and we were running it. And it was me and some other people on the team, but I was the junior member of the team. Um, and at one point we were doing an exercise, which we now call disclosure, but in the day was called discovery, which is when you um, swap documents with the other side, the documents that you're relying on and the documents they're relying on for the case that are relevant to the, the, the case. And in those days, the documents weren't electronic, they were physical. And so you had to allow the other side to physically inspect those documents. And I put the boxes of documents in a room for them to physically inspect. And I then went back to the room later in the day and I realized that in those boxes, I had left in those boxes some confidential privileged documents that they weren't entitled to look at. And I knew that they had looked at them. And so it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. I'd given away the roadmap uh, of the case to the other side in a way that, that, that um, I shouldn't have and they weren't entitled to see. And I thought, end of career, mistake. Um, and I went to the person who was supervising me at the time, who's still at the firm and a fellow partner of mine. And I went to the partner on the case, also still at the firm, who's a friend and a colleague, both friends and colleagues, um, and confessed uh, what I had done. And the immediate reaction was, oh no, shake of the head, what have you done? But within 15 seconds, they'd moved beyond that and said, let's sort this out. Um, and uh, we sorted it out because the other side uh, was um, on notice that this was confidential and privileged information. They should never have looked at it. It was obviously a privilege. Um, and they should never have requested copies of it. And they had to exercise the memory of those documents from their, uh, from their minds. And we wrote um, a letter 
uh, to the other side to put them on notice of what their professional obligations and what they had done and phoned up the partner on the other side and said, I don't want to have to send you this letter because it accuses you of doing things that you shouldn't have done. Um, I want, I'm going to read it out to you on the phone and I want you to confirm that you won't refer to these documents, you won't, uh, you'll return copies of them, etc. And it was sorted. And it taught me a very important lesson, um, which is that in those moments, the instinct to panic, the instinct to blame, uh, the instinct to sort of crawl into your shell is one that you have to resist and you have to think constructively, you have to be supportive. And it's not it's much easier said than done. And, and uh, both my colleagues, Rona and Anthony, did it and they did it in, in a very elegant way. But it was a very, very valuable lesson. Um, and I can't say that I've stayed true to that lesson on every single occasion. I panic like everyone else. Uh, but it was a very valuable lesson. I see. Well, thank you. And yeah, I, I guess from that, the, the perhaps the concept of, of leaning into the uncomfortableness and in those types of scenarios, as opposed to thinking that panicking and thinking the world's going to end, kind of embrace that almost feeling and, and lean into it, like directly hit it head on. Is that kind of what you're what you're saying, James? You do have to lean into it, and you're absolutely right. Um, and um, the temptation often is to avoid, and I still get that. As, as I said to you earlier, it's not that you learn a lesson and then that sets you up for the rest of your your life in a way that you you don't return to the same issues. Things come in, and uh, and you do panic, but you do have to step back and um, and assess the situation and return to calmness and rational thinking and make sure that the, the team around you um, is thinking through the issue with you. Yeah, excellent. Well, ties in well because I, I was listening to something fairly recently that talked about a similar concept and almost the reaction in the moment doesn't have to define the moment itself and what happens directly after the moment. It talked about people's flight or flight type mentality but they suggested that the kind of rest and digest is much harder to do but that is much more conducive to being able to to properly handle those types of of uncomfortable sometimes situations so yeah that definitely resonated with me i I guess on the flip side if we look at kind of maybe a, a career journey highlight can you kind of give me a bit james about some of the career highs and, and milestones that you've had and why those have been particularly important to you? Um, well, there are, career, there are set piece career highlights where you've been involved in a um, case, for example, and uh, you have a notable victory uh, and it's in the public domain. And they're very few and far between. They really are very few and far between. And I've been fortunate uh, to have a few of them. And I can point to, for example, uh, the second, well, both, Gina Miller cases, but the second Gina Miller case with, with the in front of the Supreme Court and that moment with Lady Justice Hale uh, reading the the, uh, the the judgment and knowing that the eyes of the nation uh, and the world actually were focused on that moment and that that felt very special. You feel in the moment. It's very rare, obviously, that you get the privilege to be on those cases. It's even rarer, I think to recognise and to be able to sit back outside of the moment and say, this is special. And that was one of the occasions. I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting there listening. Um, and so you can sit outside of the moment and, and, and enjoy it. 
um, and, and and celebrate it afterwards, and then you're on to the next thing. I mean, that that's life. You're on to the you're on to the next thing, and and the clients uh, who may have known that you're involved in that um, and may have even think that's a good thing, or they may think that was a bad thing, uh, but they actually then want their attention on your attention on, on, on their case. So it doesn't last uh, very long. Those are very special moments, but actually, I can point to lots of different moments that have got no public profile and no um, scrutiny that just make you proud uh, about having achieved something. And they can be both case and client related or firm related. But when you pulled off something within the firm, a program that's worked, or um, we're going through it at the moment, actually, um, every single year, when you go through the internal promotions process and see people moving from associate to managing associate and in that in that process or you see people moving from managing associate to partner and watching uh, especially the people that you know and have worked with their journeys through the uh, through the firm that is just as satisfying uh, and every year when we've done that i sit back and, w- and watch that and, and particularly the people i know and i've worked with as i said um, and and see that. that that's just as satisfying as those big set piece moments that are in the in, in the public world and from from my perspective, James, we'll we'll move a bit more into EDI because that's my, my my passion. One of my passions is about increased representation for for everyone, particularly kind of underrepresented groups. But then within that, as per uh, the name of the podcast, it is about for me trying to do my bit to help provide more access for Black aspiring lawyers and also Black incumbent lawyers and in future generations. That's kind of, and I think it's very important to be specific often within kind of particular aims and focuses. So that's where my real passion for EDNI comes from. As a firm, Mishcon have been very supportive of a number of different programs in, in this space and lots of different other spaces. I guess what, what I wanted to ask you is, is where does that passion for diversity come from? I guess both on a firm perspective, but also on a on a personal perspective, James. Well, again, um, I, I, I don't know that I'm I'm more passionate than than lots and lots of other people um, who who are very committed um, to this space. I feel very committed to the space, and you know, we've done a lot of professional work um, representing minority groups. Um, over the years, I started my career as an employment lawyer, uh, bringing discrimination claims, and I loved doing that because, it, and it tended to be discrimination claims in financial services, uh, and it always seemed to me to actually to be, even though those were people who could afford lawyers, could afford us, um, had access uh, to the law, it always seemed to me to be um, a good thing to be doing because equality, anti-discrimination had to operate at all levels. Of an industry, uh, so that you were breaking the, the the glass ceiling for the people that we were we were representing, whether it's people from racial minorities or ethnic minorities or gender minor or women, you're dealing with glass ceiling issues, which would allow people to come come up uh, through that. So it, it was always it was always important uh, to me, but I, but I don't set, single myself out. I think lots of right-minded people would say it was important to them. Uh, important to them. The issue for me and for our profession uh, is that for all the noble thinking, there wasn't enough noble doing. Um, So everyone uh, would have said, yes, of course, uh, we are 
anti-discrimination. We want to be an equal, we want to be equal opportunities, as, as 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 people called themselves in those days. We want to make sure there are no glass ceilings in our organisation. And I would say, generally, people in the profession were committed to those values. But uh, but but what is yeah, and what has been pointed out and illustrated much more forensically um, in, in recent years is uh, for all of those values, progress has been glacially slow uh, and uh, measurement has been bad. Uh, and so it's all very well having the values as principles in the way in which you operate and on your website and in your employment policies, uh, but we have to be held to account uh, in relation to it. And anyone can see by surveying just the websites of leading law firms uh, that progress has been woefully slow. Uh, and so what I what I like about your organization and what I like about lots of the initiatives uh, that are happening at the moment is that people are saying everyone should be held to account uh, on their ambitions, but in the holding to account, we're going to help you. And here are some of the solutions. Um, and so collaborating and partnering with people who've come up with good ideas has made it easier for people to fulfill what otherwise are just noble but unachieved ambitions. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I think from, from my perspective, certainly, uh, I think yours and the firm's approach has been very refreshing in that there's been across social media, LinkedIn in particular, but other forms of of channels, there's been a lot of talk uh, and not a lot of action, as you kind of rightly pointed out earlier. And for, for me, it comes back to if organisations and the people at the top really want to affect that change, that it has to be a firm or company-wide led, like led initiative. It can't be, well, we've done this and then that's us now covered for the next 364 days it's okay well this is a starting point and let's start with this let's measure the results let's look at the organizations that we're engaging with and that from my perspective i think is is how change moves forward uh <laughs> least glacially it is where there is that total top to bottom kind of uh input as to well, how are we going to identify what we're looking to work towards because if things aren't identified, then it's going to be hard to to measure what success looks like. But then also underneath that, it's, it's about, from my perspective, giving different organisations and organisations with representation in the groups of which they're looking to positively impact the opportunity to say, well, this is us. This is how we think we can help. And let's go on that journey together. But I, th I think one of the, the, the biggest things that I've certainly seen has been even when Programs uh, that I've kind of looked at or we've looked at as a company uh, have been put out there. It's often the success or failure of those programs comes from the people at the top and them actually holding other people to account and, and saying, well, look, if we want to ingrain this into our particular firm or legal department, then we may have to have some uncomfortable conversations because if we remain comfortable, then things probably won't move as, as fast as, as we'd like them to move. So, um, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that, James. It's, it's very useful from my perspective. I think, I think the, other, the, 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 the other thing is that you, also, you have to try things and you have to also try things on the basis that not everything is going to work. Um, because it's, these are new solutions to um, an old problem. 
and not every one of them is is going to work. Just as and 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 to that you know that um, said, it's no different from anything else you try. If we say we just we want to change the way in which we recruit trainees generally, for example, we may try something and it may not work. And um, I think one of the things that and and it's, we're still going to learn it is is to make sure that you don't not try things for the fear of failure. You've got to try quite a lot of things to see what actually moves the dial. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for, from my perspective, mentorship is a fascinating topic. It is something that I definitely struggled with when I'm going, I'm revealing my age now, but uh, when I was going through the legal education kind of system in in actually having kind of mentors who were lawyers at, at different firms or even in-house departments. And a concept that I've, uh, I've thought about quite a lot since then has been, well, well actually mentorship a doesn't need to be just for people who are starting out. It can be for people at all stages in their careers. And I've met with CEOs and, and managing partners that have had mentors because they've seen it as a, a continual learning experience uh, because everyone can be kind of topped up with, with information or um, knowledge with regards to their particular sectors. But also, I suppose, the reverse mentoring type element, uh, which ties in nicely with, with what you just mentioned, James, around, well, we need to keep trying stuff before we uh, are able to have the full probably solution in that there is often a lot to be said for reverse mentoring or having an element of reverse mentoring to different programs so that the people who are perhaps already lawyers or partners or legal professionals can dig into a little bit about the people that they're mentoring's experience so that there is that that mutuality of, of benefit, and that's one of the the most important things, uh, certainly from my perspective, on on kind of the mentoring work that, that we've looked at is to make sure that there is that two way process because I think that's really important. What was your experience like of, of mentoring or mentorship, kind of going through uh, either your legal education studies or actually as a qualified solicitor? So in in the studies, none. I mean, none at all, and no sort of, even in those days, it wouldn't be called uh, mentoring, but it would be called career advice. And that. I'm sure it was available, but um, that I didn't have any. But once I got into the firm, and this is, this is where I love my firm, um, because, you know, despite us having grown 10, 12, probably 20 fold in the time that I've been there, uh, aspects of it, the core of it remains the same. Uh, and when I got there, um, access to the most senior people in the organization then. It was Lord Mishcon and his contemporaries, but then Anthony Julius and uh, the partners a, a, around him was complete. You, you, didn't have to, you didn't have to go through any, any people or arrange times. You, were, you, you had access to every, uh, everyone. It was uh, informal. Doors were open. We didn't call it mentoring in those, uh, in those days. Uh, and um, it wouldn't be recognised as, as mentoring, but access, discussion, uh, intellectual debate, uh, the way in which we approach things, both from a business point of view and as a, a law firm point of view, um, our attitude to, uh, to the world was, it was all subject for debate, and that re remains the same. Now, obviously today, that is also contained in much more formal programmatic uh, initiatives that people uh, can benefit from, uh, including reverse mentoring. So um, each of our board um, has a reverse mentoring group uh, that gets refreshed periodically, and we all 
every one of us, we may have been skeptical about it to begin with, but every one of us would say that we've learned a lot from, uh, uh, from that. And then other, um, other mentoring programs within the organization. So I hope as an organization, it's an organization that is open to that sort of thing. I, I really think the formality of those sorts of programs uh, really works in an organization that is permeable, that is very, very, very uh, there are not too many hierarchies in terms of the way in which people can advance ideas, discuss things, complain about things, uh, be constructive about things. And, and I think you have to work at that quite hard. And I guess the, the kind of internal versus external type of, of mentoring perhaps allows for, you'd hope not, but sometimes two different conversations, because we've certainly, I've certainly heard it a couple of times from law firms that have had purely kind of one or the other. And I find where there is the mix that there's the opportunity to get to know kind of in probably some more detail, uh, some internal uh, kind of questions or internal sentiment, but then having an external position as well often allows for a little bit more freedom for which people can can speak without kind of necessarily thinking, well, I've just told my firm's managing partner that someone stole my tea, for example, whatever it may be. Have you found that, James? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the, the definitely the, the two have to work side by side and certain things can't only be dealt with, solved, advanced through an internal mentoring program. And we have quite a lot of uh, external service providers and they perform a very uh, important function. Um, and, and you can't, you can't, there's no way that you can deliver a program. It may be men mentoring, it may be other aspects of career enhancement and discussion purely from the inside because otherwise you, you really do have an echo chamber um, and so external perspectives are, are, are absolutely vital and and there are re release valve as well for frustrations and ideas and the rest of it yeah so look james i appreciate you uh giving me your your thoughts and, and feedback on the kind of mentoring side of things and the internal versus external piece uh, i guess what one of the questions that i wanted to ask you is regards to your message to other leaders at law firms in particular around diversity and equality and in particular reference to making things authentic because working with, with you in the firm, that's certainly something that, that I've personally felt for everything that we've spoken about and the way in which we've been able to have access to you and your colleagues uh, has been brilliant and it's very much appreciated our side. One of the bits that I think so it resonated with me from a couple of years ago, and someone said that in order for change to happen, it's often it can't happen quickest where it comes from the person or the particular demographic that is looking for that change to occur. It often has to happen from people that aren't part of that particular demographic. And what I wanted to, I guess, ask for you is that you've played a big role in driving change forward at, at Mishcom in terms of some of the programs that, that we've been running and, and looking to increase black representation generally. What kind of one bit of advice, steer, would you give to, to other managing partners that are looking at going down this sort of journey and, and really being specific with regards to black representation in law? I, I don't know that we do things better. We do things. We do things in our uh, own way. When, when something's important to you, uh, stay involved in it. So all of all of the big law firms 
um, have got big organizations behind them doing amazing work and it might be their people the people part of their organization or the tech part or whatever um, and as managing partners or other leaders in the organizations you absolutely cannot be over everything and they're complex organizations and you need to delegate to the, the people but the bits that are important to you stay involved in um, and and be involved in the decision making because even where there's great will to do stuff there's also process um, and process is important obviously um, but sometimes process has to be overridden or thought about again uh, and exceptions have to be made uh, outside of the normal things that, that, uh, that you're doing. And, and you have to do that in the bits of your operation that are really important to you, um, that you think either are important to you strategically or important to you for other, other reasons. Uh, and so that another example is, is climate, for example, uh, and the environment. And again, I really think there's a great will amongst uh, the profession to do something uh, and to do something well. And we're involved in a, in a series of initiatives. And the one that's going to be the most successful is one not that I put together, but, uh, but a managing partner of another law firm has put together. He, and he's got the managing partners of quite a few firms, maybe 20 firms, into a room to make a common commitment to what we're prepared, uh, we're pre prepared to do. And that's going to be the most successful because people have come outside of the process that they've set up to deal with climate and uh, purpose and the rest of it to lend their personal uh, weight to it. Uh, and you can't do it across everything, but but you can do it over a, 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 across a few things. Uh, and so if it's important to you, stay involved is what I would say. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and finally, James, I guess reflecting, looking back on a very successful uh, legal career. If there was one piece of advice, the piece of wisdom that you could give to uh, your younger self who was starting out in the legal profession today, what would it be? I think it goes back to that first thing that we were speaking uh, uh, speaking about, but it's a slightly different aspect of it, which is, and this is just in, in sort of legal practice or dealing with other lawyers or your client or whatever. A, a, a very good piece of advice uh, given to me was never send your first draft, never send anything in anger, never speak with your initial uh, reaction and, and think. And, and again, it's not something uh, that I can say that I've learned to the extent that I always do, I always do it. Um, but it definitely is wise uh, to not rely on your first reaction to something, whether it's in the legal part of your career or in the management part of your career. And the other thing is that there is great sense, wisdom, humor, uh, kindness uh, around uh, our organizations. And I, and I, uh, and I think, I'm not, I've only been at Michigan de uh, but I observe the legal industry and I, for all the criticism it gets, um, I genuinely think uh, that people's hearts are in the right uh, right place. They want to perform, they want to do their jobs, and they want to make their organizations commercially successful, uh, but they want to do it on the whole in the right way. Uh, and I think within our organizations and outside of our organizations, there's lots of people around um, who will help you do that. And so uh, you don't have to assume all of the responsibility yourself uh, to you know, move the agenda forward, move the case forward, uh, deal with things. 
Excellent. Well, James, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time out. It's a pleasure. I, I always love our conversation, so it's been a complete pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Black Lawyers Matter podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on how Black Lawyers Matter is helping to unlock opportunities for black professionals in law, head over to blacklawyersmatter.co.uk. For more information on how the Stephen James Partnership is addressing underrepresentation in the legal space, head over to thesjp.co.uk. Join us next time for more of the Black Lawyers Matter podcast.